How do women who are mothers and professors navigate both callings while living out their faith? Join us for a conversation full of wisdom and encouragement with Professor Christina Lee Kim after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Hello and welcome back. I'm your host, Dan. It is the start of a new semester here in Madison, and we're buzzing with energy, welcoming students and the broader UW community back from summer break. Before jumping into this episode, I want to encourage you to head to upperhouse.org and check out our fall lineup of events and learning cohorts. We have a lot on offer. There's an assumption that you sometimes hear in the university community that motherhood and academia are incompatible. In fact, that tension doesn't just exist in academia, but also in the broader society. As American families have moved more and more to two-income households, and as many professions that were historically closed to women have opened up, the assumption has been proved wrong over and over. In this episode, Upper House's senior writer, Susan Smetzer Anderson, speaks with Christina Lee Kim, a professor of psychology at Biola University, about the unique challenges for mothers who are faculty, researchers, and teachers. As two mothers themselves, they talk about growing up with their own mothers as models, the challenges of balancing career and family responsibilities, and about the particular needs of Christian women seeking to live out their faith in multiple contexts. Christina Lee Kim is an associate professor in the Rosemead School of Psychology at Biola University and a licensed clinical psychologist. Her research interests include cross-cultural and multicultural psychology, mental health issues in the church, and Asian American psychology. As a mother of three daughters, she shares her story of balance as both a professor and mother in a recent collected volume from InterVarsity Press titled Power Women, Stories of Motherhood, Faith, and the Academy. Please enjoy this Upwards conversation with Susan and Christina Lee Kim. I am so grateful today to have the opportunity to talk with Christina Lee Kim, who is an associate professor of psychology at Biola University. She wrote an amazing chapter in a new book by InterVarsity Press, and the chapter's name is The Good Mother. The book that it's part of is called Power Women. It's a collection of stories of motherhood, faith, and the academy, meaning it's focusing on women who have worked very hard to be educated and then get professional roles in the academy as professors or researchers or teachers and instructors. And all of these women have in common the fact that they are trying to balance motherhood and work. And come to some sense of balance in their lives and peace, if you will, too, with these two or more different roles that they play in their lives. So I was really struck, Christina, by the way, welcome. I was, oh, thank you. Yeah, I was really struck, Christina, by the authenticity of this chapter that you wrote. It was such a delight to read because you share mm. your personal story as a woman who has worked very hard to achieve your professional dream and the academy as a teacher and a person who has studied psychology for years. 
But you also are a mother of three people. And I would love you if you would just talk a little bit about your life and your family and how you came to be where you are in your work. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me, first of all. Thank you for reading the book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I think just how I've come to be. Well, I am a mother of three, three girls, three daughters. It's actually funny because I'm one of three girls myself. So... Mm. Uh, I have, I'm the oldest of three daughters, and then I ended up having three daughters. The estrogen runs very strong in our family, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> um, but yeah, my my girls, I have two in high school, and my youngest is a fourth grader. Um, and they were all born, actually, um, while I was working as a professor. So mm-hmm. I got married, and then soon after I got married, I got married in my last year of grad school. And then right after that, I started a postdoctoral fellowship that was two years. And right after that, I was hired as as full-time faculty at Biola. So my academic, it's just one straight line in terms of, you know, the doors opening (laughs) to get to where I've been. And then I've been at at Biola this, actually, this fall, we'll start my 20th year teaching at Biola. Oh, that seems yeah. astonishing to me. I mean, I have yeah. the privilege of looking at you on Zoom and you look no more than 30. So oh, I'm like, she must have been a genius and started this trajectory no, very no. early in her life. Uh, you know, they say Asian don't raisin, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I yeah, I, it it's a little mind boggling to me, too, to think that it's been about 20 years since I started teaching there. Um and I had my first daughter, it was in 2006. So it was not long after I had started um, full-time mm-hmm. teaching. And mm-hmm. so that jump into like, you know, the feeling super happy and like, oh, I finished my PhD, like mm-hmm. feeling all proud and all that kind of stuff. And then literally like the next year, uh, no, within the next two, three years, I was like, oh, I'm about to have a baby. Hmm. What do I do now? (laughs) Do I keep working full time? Do I cut back? You know, I had so many friends who were very accomplished educationally. And then once they had their first child decided to become stay at home mothers. Mm -hmm. And um, that was something I was like, am I supposed to do that? Um, Wait, but I don't want to do that. But then how do you do full time work and then also be a a mom, a good mom, right? Right. Um, So that was kind of, how I opened my chapter with just this this strange dilemma that I found myself in and wondering if other women experienced, well, knowing that other women experienced it, but because so many of my friends had actually quit their jobs to stay at home, hmm. wondering a little bit like, well, what was wrong with me? <laughs> and, oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. And then, yeah, it was, it was actually my mom who, who said, what? I didn't, raise you and see you through school so that you could just quit your job and stay at home after you had babies. And I was floored by that response. Like I, I had not expected that from her. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, so that was that it was like, Oh, okay, well, I guess I'm going to keep working. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. that's a little bit about your mom. I think your mom sounds like a fascinating and very, um, wise woman, you know, so I was born here in the United States. My parents immigrated from South Korea, um, my dad in the late 60s, and then he went back to Korea, married my mom. And so they came in the early 70s. And she was 
I mean, she was, she's smart. Um, she was in graduate school and quit graduate school once she got married, which was not uncommon in South Korea in those mm-hmm. days. Like it was, it was, you know, and, and of all the, um, major she had she was actually a korean woman studying in south korea but her major was english literature <laughs> isn't that interesting oh my goodness yeah <clears throat> so we have all these um my daughter was just telling me the other day that you know they're about to read great gatsby in their mm-hmm. in their class and she was looking for a copy and she found an annotated copy of the great gatsby in one of our bookshelves it was annotated in korean it was my mother's copy oh. and she was looking at the print date it was like in the 60s or something. (laughs) Yes. So yeah, my mom was an English lit major, but never finished um, grad school um, because she got married, moved out here. And, you know, we had no extended family here uh, in LA. Uh, My dad, he was at the time they got married, he was kind of in business. And, um, and so, you know, she raised three kids out here not knowing the culture, not knowing the language, um, you know, kind of a typical immigrant sort of story. Mm -hmm. Um, But Mm -hmm. my father, who was in business, actually pursued, um, he felt like he was being called into full-time ministry. And so Mm -hmm. it was sometime around like middle school, he started attending seminary. And then Mm -hmm. I remember like, so yeah, sometime in middle school, he became a pastor. And so everything sort of changed after that. And so now mm-hmm. my mom was a pastor's wife. So she was a stay-at-home mom, <clears throat> but now she was this pastor's wife. And to be honest, my mom, at the time she got married to my dad, was not a Christian. I think she became Christian after she married mm-hmm. my dad. Um, so it, she was really not the typical pastor's wife. If mm-hmm. I don't know, like if... if you know, people would know in Korean churches, like what the typical pastor's wife looks like. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she was not that. Um, mm-hmm. She, and so I think that role was difficult for her. Okay. Um, she grew into parts of it. She's very good at hospitality and, and things like that. But, you know, she wasn't one of the women who would like lead Bible studies or prayer mm-hmm. meetings or things like that. And, um, and she was probably a little more hip than your typical like sort Mm. of very modest conservative pastor's wife and Mm -hmm. because she was educated too she had a strong belief that education was important and um when she had three girls but all of us grew up she never pushed us um my parents were not very strict like they weren't that typical asian stereotypical like oh, you got an A minus, why didn't you get an A? It it Uh wasn't one of those kinds of things. Uh Like she really, she was so busy, I think, because ministry and just three kids and other things. um, We, all three of us grew up um, kind of independently achieving the things that we did. We're all, we all have careers. We all have kids. Yeah. Um, And she always would, see like if she would see one of my friends who had gotten like her JD or her PhD and then all of a sudden had children and stopped working my mom would say oh like that would in Korean it's like oh what a waste like Um, and and it sounds kind of harsh but it wasn't Mm -hmm. so much it was it was like this the way I interpreted it was like wow like she had so much potential to contribute something to Mm-hmm. our community to our society to something mm-hmm. and then she's just staying at home like why you know yeah. Yeah. um and so 
Yeah, I it didn't really hit me until I had my own children that my mom like was total feminist, actually, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in that way. And, and it was different from her own life. And part of it was probably because she was frustrated, like not being right. able to accomplish the things she would have done had she stayed mm-hmm. in South Korea. But um, I'm really thankful for her. She she helped watch um, my kids like part time um, mm-hmm. when they were really young so that I could keep working. Um, Which and, is huge. Yeah, That's it's huge. huge. It's uh-huh. huge. Um, I don't know how how people do it without the support of no. community, family. Um, right. It's been an integral part. It still is. My mom still helps us a ton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, what strikes me as you're talking about your mom is a she is ethnically Korean. Mm-hmm. Very much so. I mean, she, her Korean is her first language and she comes into our culture and in a way she's able to look at our culture as an outsider and kind of yep. perceive some things that may be invisible to a lot of women like me who mm-hmm. within our own cultures, we often are unaware of the ideologies and the the very strong ideas that we hold about how we're supposed to do things. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about your chapter is you name the fact that we have an ideology about what it means to be a good mother, or yeah. we hold several ideologies about that. And so what I would like for you to do is to talk to us about these what an ideology is, for one thing, and also some of the more prevalent ideologies that some of us hold about what it means to be a quote unquote good mother. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I um, was in a research group when I was a doctoral student, and this is where I first heard of the term motherhood ideology. Like it, it was sort of a subcategory of a, a broader term, which is gender ideology. Mm-hmm. And in one of the graduate courses that I teach, we actually um, unpack, I have the students sort of unpack what they have come to believe personally is appropriate for someone who is male or someone who is female. And this is what we call our gender ideology. Like it's it's a set of beliefs that we hold and that are largely influenced by culture, our family of origin, you know, our churches, our schooling, um, mass media, you know, what mm-hmm. we see on TV. Uh, um, and lots of times what we believe about that is very subconscious. Like we don't really think about it. So indirectly we're socialized into these Mm -hmm. beliefs, like about Mm -hmm. what it means to be female or what it means to be male. And this motherhood category was in a research meeting. I remember someone was talking about, well, what does it mean to be a good mother? That's a motherhood ideology. And I thought, Oh, that's kind of interesting. Well, because as I listened to some of my colleagues unpack what they believe to be a good mother, I realized, wow, we all have slightly different <laughs> different uh-huh. notions of what that is. Uh-huh. Um, and that's fascinating to me because um, for some women, what it means to be a good mother is to be a stay-at-home mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've grown up and they've really come to believe this is what, this is what my children need. This is what mm-hmm. the house needs, you know, my home. And then for other other women, what it means to be a good mother might be to be a working mom. It's, it's mm-hmm. so it's fascinating to consider mm-hmm. that the ways we think about what makes a good mom, like <clears throat> what it means to be a good mother is a mother who cooks like 
healthy, mm-hmm. you know, organic meals and dinners for their family. Um, I I don't do that, and I and I have this shame about that mm-hmm. because that's part of what I believe is a good mother, and yet I don't measure up to that belief. You know, right, right. And so we all have internalized an idea of what it means to be a good mom, and and some of those ideas we live out. And others, we might actually feel, yeah, shame or regret or something like, like, oh, we don't live up to that. And so, uh, yeah, it's very fascinating to me. Right. And I found myself really resonating with um, your talking about women who have worked hard to develop a competency, for example, in a field, like Mm -hmm. for you, it's psychology, for me, it's communication. And I have worked for a number of years. And actually, I became a mother later, Um, we adopted two daughters. And I ended up deciding to stay at home. But I found my decision to be unsettling. I felt very restless mm. as a stay-at-home mom. And um, I honestly kept looking for other things to do that would fulfill parts of me that weren't fulfilled by being a mom. Mm-hmm. And um, as a matter of fact, I remember going to church and my daughter, who was newly adopted from China was like streaking around the congregation and just being adorable. And she was being observed and somebody says, Oh, you know, let me introduce you to Carolyn's mom, meaning me when she brought somebody up to me to meet. And I'm like, wait a minute, what happened to my name? Yeah. It was like, wait, I'm a person of my own. Mm. You know, I've done a lot of work. I, I, you know, the whole thing about my identity was really brought forward in that moment. So, um, but it mm. made me very aware that the same expectations I placed upon myself to be good in the workplace, to be highly competent, I also placed upon myself as a mother. Like, yeah. I needed to be highly competent. If I'm going to be a stay-at-home mom, mm-hmm. I better be good at it. Yeah. Because I'm yes. not bringing a salary in anymore. I better make mm-hmm. the meals. I better, like do a good job cleaning the house. Well, that never happened. <laughs> I'm just terrible at it. But oh. um, but anyway, you know, this whole idea of competency, I think you bring out um, in your work. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit and also about this idea of intensive mothering. Yes. Yeah. It- yeah. Sharon Hayes has a lot of research on the topic of intensive mothering where it's... Um, this belief, it's this ideology, this motherhood ideology, this belief that, you know, mothers should and will and, you know, give all parts of themselves to this role of being a mother. Um, everything is for the children. And and that should actually be like your, like it, it'll fulfill you completely too. Like, mm-hmm. so like, and, and mothers are going to be there at every turn and they're going to do, you know, everything. And and in her research, you know, she finds that this is actually very pervasive across the United States, um, this idea. And, and I think in other countries, people can relate to it as well. But this idea that you will give like everything of yourself towards this task of mothering. Um, and what I think is unfortunate about it, you know, as you know, you mentioned too, like this, uh, oh, I'm terrible at this. And, and I feel the same way is like, we can't really live up to those Mm-hmm. ideals and i don't know that um that it's 
healthy for us Mm -hmm. to try to live up to that. Um, Mm -hmm. Where did we come to adopt that as a belief? Um, Mm -hmm. And is that even a good thing for our children too? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, these days you hear about like helicopter parents. I've I've heard the term shift to uh, bulldozer parents where it's not only that they hover anymore, but now they like go in and clear the way for their child. Interesting. Um, And I don't know that, that, I mean, psychologically speaking, that that's even necessarily a good thing Mm -hmm. um, for the child's development. So we've come to adopt these really intensive beliefs. And and I think for women who are quite accomplished, but I think for in in any field, not just in academia, Mm -hmm. um, in general, we are very competent people. I I think God has wired women in, in such wonderful ways that we, we're, a lot of, a lot of us are very capable. We can do all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. We're pretty good at multitasking and especially women who, you know, are professors and academics, like, you know, they can do research and they can do this and, you know, they're, they're very accomplished. And I think what I talk about in my chapter is this idea of competence while it's great, it can also be a little bit dangerous. I think for me personally, I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but for me personally, this competence, when I know I can do something and I just go ahead and I do it, um, sometimes manifests itself in a form of pride and what I call self-sufficiency, like just Mm. doing it on my own as opposed to um, a spirit dependency where mm-hmm. I do things together with with God or with mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit. And this exercise, this daily like like self-sufficient way mm-hmm. that I function um, is actually something I, I struggle with. I, I think is is one of the biggest temptations that I hold. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that I will just kind of plow ahead and do it on my own. Rather than waiting, waiting um, to follow, to follow how God might be leading me in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And and it's a direct result of my competence. Really, it is mm-hmm. because I can do it. And and I've got three kids and I'm working full time. So I got to be efficient. Right. And I got to mm-hmm. just boom, 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 move ahead rather mm-hmm. than stopping to attend to oh, what might God be doing in this situation? Mm-hmm. Um, where can I join him in that mm-hmm. rather than just kind of bowling forward mm-hmm. on my own? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really identify with that. I think, and actually I was encouraged when I was reading your chapter that I've allowed my competence to become a form of idol. Mm-hmm. And I've also, and 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 part of it is because I'm so driven actually to write or to do work that I really enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. Just because it's the way I'm made. So there's, but doing it well is very important to me. And sometimes I think I um, block out a bunch of the other things that are important in my life in order to focus on those things that I'm really good at. But when it comes to being in a parenting situation with my children, I think sometimes can be a little distorted because if I can like somehow do everything right in my family, Mm. there's a pressure there. There's a should there Mm. that kind of becomes a weight and, and it, it becomes a stressor 
if you will. Mm -hmm. It's it's no longer something I do um, or really experience delight in. It's more like I'm supposed to be good at this and I'm supposed to have discernible results that are positive. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And in parenting, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. That That's a guarantee, you know, that our labor that's will right. yield certain results. And so, but there's, I think an implied should when we have yeah. this ideology that if you're a good mother, then you should see good results, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love how, you know, you mentioned that, yeah, it's, there isn't a direct correlation. I mean, there is some correlation, right? If we're good mothers, hopefully our kids will turn out okay, but mm -hmm. it's not completely under our control either. Mm -hmm. There's no way we can control the outcome of what happens with their kids. And in some ways, um, and, and that's the deception, I think, of this intensive mothering mm -hmm. ideology or this belief is in some ways, I think it is a control or like a mm -hmm. defense. In psychology, we use the word defense, like a defense against some of our own anxiety about not being in control, right? Mm -hmm. um, like there are so many things that are out of my control. And to be competent is one way to try and actually feel like I am in control. Right, so I don't feel so anxious right. all the time, you know? Right. Uh-huh. Um, and and you know, that's not a bad thing. Of course, you know, God gives us again all of our talents and gifts and skills mm -hmm. and and we exercise them appropriately and responsibly and and as to the Lord, we work hard. Mm -hmm. Um but I think it is that thing, like, is it is it to the Lord, as unto the Lord, or is it because we're just trying to control a situation right. or just trying to right. defend against our own feelings of anxiety, fear, or helplessness. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So talk to me about how you think God sees us as mothers or how, how we might be a little different in our approach if we took a more God-centered approach to our mm. parenting. <clears throat> yeah. You know, I remember, um, well, this is something I actually continue to ponder and wonder about because God sees us, I believe, with so much, I mean, the scripture teaches with so much love and patience and mm -hmm. grace. And mm -hmm. um, he knows all of our faults and failures and he knows where we lack. And, and I don't think that causes his love for us to, you know, decrease at all. I think he accepts us as we are. And I think something that um, I'm still learning about God is trusting him, like trusting mm -hmm. in that love. I think rather than, um, you know, this just slightly legalistic kind of way of trying to do things that please him to win his favor or to win his you know, approval or something mm -hmm. like that. And, and when it comes to the task of mothering, um, I, I pray a prayer for my children every day. It, ever since they were little, it's based on the verse in Luke, I think chapter two, where it says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and um, man or something like that. And, and, um, that's what I pray for my kids. I pray that they would grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and favor with other people around them. Um, it's just like this little daily breath mm -hmm. of prayer that I pray for my kids. And 
I realized, you know, ultimately, mothering is a role, it's kind of like an assignment, a task that God has given me. Mm -hmm. These kids belong to Him. Mm -hmm. And I think the more I can surrender that rather than trying to control again all those different outcomes, like as I think about my high schoolers and them going off to college soon, like I feel anxious, like, where are they going to go? What are they going to do? What are they going to major in? Like, are they going to be okay out there? Like, mm -hmm. are they going to go to church? Like, you know, like mm -hmm. there's so much that I feel it, like it feels scary to me in this season right now. Like this is uh, right now we're recording this as school is starting, you know, mm -hmm. um, and I'm watching some of my friends send their kids off to college for the first time. And I see the the, the devastation mm -hmm. at the separation and yet at the same time this pride that they have for their kids and just love and but fear and and I, I'm just reminded like how short of a time we're actually like they're under our wing I mean I'll be forever be their mother but um mm -hmm. how do I hold this role in such a way that acknowledges the reality that these kids belong to God so much more than they belong to me Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and and I think um, that's <laughs> there's grace there too like you know like where I fail so many times as a mom and those are some of my other prayers is like God you know I kind of screwed up this one today Lord mm -hmm. make up for Mm -hmm. the areas that I've failed like I, I that was unnecessary why did I say that or you know mm -hmm. um in addition to apologizing to my children but like how Lord would you fill in those gaps right yeah where they're not getting from me what they really need to flourish you know mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. yeah it's so kind of you to say that and share that I have similar fears mm -hmm. my daughters are getting to that college bound age. Yeah. But there are so many times I wish I had said something differently. Yeah. Or, um, yeah. And then there are times when, and especially when they're out in public or they're interacting with other adults that I look at them and I am so astounded at mm -hmm. their beauty in terms of the way they interact with other people or mm -hmm. their intuition about how to care for somebody yeah. who, you know, is in their path at that moment. And, and I realize they are their own people. Mm -hmm. They are mm -hmm. astonishingly unique and mm -hmm. capable. And in spite of what I might say sometimes that I regret or anything that I may have left undone, which they remind me of all the time. Mm -hmm. um, they are still absorbing my care. Yeah. I mean, they know I have, I have been there for them that's at right. times that nobody else has ever seen or will ever know about. And I think that's the reason our ties to our mothers are so precious is because if we have a healthy relationship, if we have people mm. that we trust, which is a gift and I shouldn't take it for granted, mm. um, we do come away from that person somehow engaged or empowered to do good in the world because they did good with us and tried and hung in there with yeah. us. And, and I think even knowing our weaknesses, there's some grace that they experience just saying okay they're a broken person 
And that's okay because I've Mm -hmm. seen them deal with their brokenness and apologize when they need to apologize. And in a sense, even those apologies are a gift. So Mm -hmm. that's my short and winsome take on what I hope my children will take from my being their mom. Yeah. So, yeah. mm -hmm. Yeah. There's, there are those every once in a while, those moments where, yeah, um, I'll, I'll see kind of at a deeper level that I have influenced them like they've internalized something about mm-hmm. me that I hadn't necessarily like maybe I had hoped for but I wasn't sure if it was there mm-hmm. or something you know right mm-hmm. and um and then I think oh thank you God <laughs> like mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. thank you thank for, you that I got a chance to see that yes I mean yes, that's thank you. that's mm-hmm. a huge gift yeah. yeah and you know as we're talking I realized so there's so many parenting books out there. There's mm. so many how to's. Um, I actually have not read a lot of those. And it's partly because they seem to set a standard that was so high that knowing mm. myself the way I did, I wasn't actually sure I could implement the practices that were being recommended. But yeah. how can we as women of faith, regardless of our profession, regardless of whatever it is that we've you know, aspired to educationally, uh, how can we as women of faith be good sounding boards for one another or good encouragers of one another? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I actually have not read a lot of those parenting books too. And I, I remember early on when my kids are young, I did pick some up, you know, people like highly recommend, oh, this Christian, you know, book or wing. And I found myself to be completely honest, like so annoyed at uh-huh. those books because mm-hmm. I felt like oh, really like um and and over time I've actually just come to believe and I think actually I t- I teach a developmental psychology class of lifespan development and we talk about um in one of the lectures we talk about <clears throat> um sleeping practices amongst mm-hmm. people from different cultural backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a huge you know, variety of ways that parents go about putting their kids to bed and Mm -hmm. and sometimes in individual settings, sometimes co-sleeping, you know, a lot of different Mm -hmm. things. And, and the point of comparing these different cultures in my lecture is not to say one is better than the other, because actually all these kids will grow up to be perfectly fine and well-adjusted get enough sleep, Mm -hmm. but it's to show that our cultural values actually underlie or undergird so many of our parenting decisions. Mm-hmm. And that's why as I read some of these books, I realize, well, okay, you believe this is best, but you know, what is the value that undergirds that? And actually sometimes that value might be different from mine, right? So yeah. um we might have different things that are important to us. We actually we do have different things that are important to us. And where we can find a common great, but where we find differences, I don't know that um, it's always, you know, help, it doesn't help kind of build one another up in terms of hmm. like, um, you know, if, if we were to, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, basically just sometimes I think in American culture, you know, in American culture, we really do value like independence, um, in some cultures, like in Asian cultures, we value more interdependence. Right. And so, and and one is not better than the other. Those both are so adaptive for that cultural setting. 
Mm-hmm. And so how do we make our decisions? How do we become aware of what's the value underneath that decision? Why am I making this decision? And and when you ask the question, like, how can we encourage or become a sounding board for others? I think some of the best conversations I've had with other mothers are ones where we can unpack some of those values mm-hmm. and not judge one another simply on the superficial level about, oh, like, why did you do this? Or, oh, no, you should do it this way. Or, you mm-hmm. know, um, but really trying to think underneath like, oh, okay, what's at the heart of that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think pulling that out can be such an, um, a rewarding task, I think, for for the women involved in those conversations, because um, one, we're just also different. Um, but two, I think we can have a greater commitment towards, yeah, what is it that I really value? Like as a Christian, what is it that I really want my kids to take away? Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's an example of a time when I became aware of a little parenting practice we had implemented when my when my oldest daughter was really young, like preschool age, and then thinking, okay, so what had happened was, okay, we were at a Father's Day luncheon at the preschool, and uh, we go, my daughter's like four, <clears throat> and we go, my husband and I go, and they were showing us, you know, they had, it's kind of like an open house. They had like the kids artwork all over the classroom and everything. Yeah. So we go up to this one wall where the artwork that was up there was a paper that was split in half. And on one side says, I love it when my dad, and then the child filled it in and drew a picture. And then on the other side, side it said, I don't like it when my dad, and mm-hmm. then the child had filled it in and, and um, yeah, oh boy. So, I can yes, see all yes. sorts of uncomfortable things happening in that moment if you're the father on display. Coming out on that wall, yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so my husband and I were looking at, you know, looking for my daughter's, you know, name and which one is hers. Okay, and so it said, "I love it when my dad." And it was something, something like nice. It was something like affection. I don't even remember the details. <clears throat> um. And so, you know, there was a cute picture, but then it said, and both my husband, the minute we saw it, we kind of looked at each other and we're like, oh no, oh. it said, I don't like it when my dad says, go to your room and cry. Okay. Now, just to give you some context for that. So my oldest daughter, she, she cried a lot. She was like a crybaby, but when she would cry and if you tried to have a conversation with her, like in the midst of her tears, it just did not work. Like oh, yeah. she was just too worked up emotionally. Like she had a hard time. And my husband especially just did not have um, the patience and sort of saw it as a waste of time to sit there and try and talk with her through those tears. Right. And for him, it was better where he would say, go to your room and cry and then come out and then we'll talk. Right. right. Like after mm-hmm. you kind of calm down for, you know. Um, and so I got that. So he would do that sometimes with her, when she would get worked up, he would say, you know, go to your room and cry. And, but as we looked at that (laughs) thing on the wall, we looked at each other, we're like, oh, and what we realized, and we kind of debriefed after, what we realized was the message that he was indirectly sending to her was, I can't handle your tears. I don't want to, I don't want to be around your tears. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, That that's not acceptable. And so something that was at a practical level, something that worked in our mm-hmm. family mm-hmm. actually was communicating a value that we didn't want to communicate. Oh, like we, yeah. we did not want her to think that we could not handle 
her tears or her emotions, mm-hmm. or we didn't accept that, or it wasn't, you know, unacceptable before us. And, and I think that actually changed, um, our practice, like seeing that, um, mm-hmm. to, to think, okay, no, like it's okay to cry in front of us. Right. Yes, <laughs> we, yes. we had to like be very intentional about trying to change that. And I think, and, and because we, the value is, I think God can handle our emotions and I want to communicate to my mm. kids that you can, you can cry before God. You can get angry before God. You can, and he can handle it. He's not going to send you away until you've calmed down to come talk to him. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. I love the fact that she had that picture up on the wall. And yeah. it was, I wonder if other parents had similar experiences where they had yes, those I'm moments sure. of like, oh my gosh. Yeah. We're all kind of mortified, mm-hmm. semi-mortified. <laughs> what I'm thinking as you're talking and is that the power of simply listening and being present in the moment is maybe the parenting practice that is extremely important overall. I mean, it's actually just being present relationally to anybody, but especially to our kids and in our busy lives, um, you know, where we're trying to do the multitasking you mentioned earlier, I'm wondering if that is uh, the reminder of what it means to be a really good mom is learning how to be present when you are with them. So I think really good mom or really good human, really good friend, really good daughter, coworker, Mm -hmm. um, to be present. I, I struggle with that because in any day, any moment I'll have like, you know, 50 different things running through my mind, like, okay, mm-hmm. do this, do that. And again, going back to that competence, like I mm-hmm. know how to make the most of my time, you know, give mm-hmm. me 15 minutes anywhere and I can get something done. And, um, but who am I doing that for? Like, <laughs> right. Like what is all that striving for? Yeah. Um, and how do I learn to just whew, center myself mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. be present? Mm-hmm. Yeah. With my kids or with others. That's so true. Since you've written this chapter, can you tell us anything else you've learned about being a good mother? Yeah, it's it's actually, you know, the book came out just recently. It was released not too long ago, last October. But um, it's actually been a while since I actually wrote that chapter. And since then, that theme of self-sufficiency versus spirit dependence, I think I'm just trying to reflect more and lean into what does it really look like to be spirit dependent in all my mm-hmm. daily activities and something i um more recently have been discussing with the help of my spiritual director is this idea of empowerment versus engagement like this kind of blew my mind the first time she pointed this out was that you know, she was asking me how I pray, hmm. like what, like what is my typical prayer on a busy work day look like or a busy mothering day? Mm-hmm. And, and I was saying, yeah, I think a lot of my prayers are like, God, give me wisdom for this or strength for this, or Lord, help me with this. Or, you know, like it, mm-hmm. it's asking God for something. Mm-hmm. And what she pointed out that was a little like, wow, I hadn't thought of it that way was what she, what she pointed out was Christina, it sounded like, it sounds a little bit like you are asking God for something in order to go 
and then just do it yourself. <laughs> like, mm. so you're asking God for some goodies or some resources, and then you're going to move forward and still operate out of this self-sufficiency. And I was like, yeah, that's what I do. Mm. I do do that. Um, and then she said, as opposed to maybe asking God, how are you already at work in this and where can I join mm-hmm. you? And she said, it's like a prayer of empowerment. Lord, empower me to do something, which is not a bad thing. I think we can always pray that, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, but versus a prayer of engagement, doing it with Jesus together. And it reminded me actually of the chapter, because in in the end of the chapter, um, you know, that had written several years before, it was this idea of what does it mean to be yoked to Jesus? You know, Mm. um, when Jesus says, come to me you who labor and I will give you rest. I'm like, ah, yes, that sounds great. But in the very next verse, it says, take my yoke upon you. And I'm, the more I sat with that verse, I was like, yoke, isn't that heavy? (laughs) Isn't that like a burden, like a shackle? Like when I think of a yoke, I don't think of rest, you know, like, like, wait a minute. And what does that actually look like? And I I think the more that, that God, like, what does it mean? Lord, um, he made me aware of this massive blind spot I had in my life. I think for me, all of my self-sufficient striving and competence, like that's my own yoke that I had. Like I, I was chained down. Like when I read the verse, I was reading it as if I was like this free bird flying around in the sky. And then, so then the thought of putting on a yoke, even if it was to Jesus felt restricting Mm-hmm. I completely neglected the fact that my self-striving was actually a huge burden I was carrying all by myself. And what right. Jesus is saying is replace that with the one that I have for you and I carry it with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that part. The burden is light. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's the engagement. It's like the like, Lord, help me do all these things on my own versus Lord, where are you at work? And how do I just join you in that? How do I follow right. you? Right. Um, that's something that I've been really chewing on a lot. And as I enter a new school year, really, I think trying to be intentional about moving out mm-hmm. um, in my day-to-day tasks is like, Lord, where where are you already at work? Mm-hmm. And yes, I will still pray for <laughs> empowerment, you know, yes. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I think just trying to be intentional about not just moving forward on my own, but the following Jesus mm-hmm. where he's leading That's such a helpful answer. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love the idea of being accompanied in whatever I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And it's far less lonely and far less stressful. Absolutely. Such a great reminder. Yeah. In our mothering, in our work, in our Mm -hmm. friendships. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That he's always with us. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I hope somebody... Hearing this will make the effort to go pick out the book, Power Women, simply Mm. because I think there is a lot of shared wisdom in that book written by women who all have struggled with different dimensions of being present and being available to their kids and trying to figure out what that means to them as um, professionals and human beings who really care Mm -hmm. about being of service 
um, in whatever domains they're playing. So I want to sincerely thank you for your time. I've just enjoyed oh, getting to know you. you so much and you are a delight. And oh, um, yeah, I, I wish you well and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk again another time. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.